I'm Yasi Salik, and I'm the host of Bandsplain, a show where we explain cult bands and iconic artists by going deep into their histories and discographies. We're back with a brand new season at our brand new home, the Ringer Podcast Network, tackling a whole new batch of artists, from grunge gods to power pop pioneers to new metal legends, and many, many more. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability, no system. No matter how advanced can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions, always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. Hello, friends. A quick note to say that after this episode, 60 songs will be going on a brief restorative hiatus and will return in October with the final 16 episodes. We did 14 in a row this time. I was going to do 15, but I got to go to Sweden next week. That's not a euphemism for anything. I got to go to Sweden. But we will return in October where BTW, I will have a great deal more to say about the 60 songs that explain the 90s book, which, if you were not aware, will be released on November 14th and which is available for pre-order now. I will miss you terribly, but I need to go lie down now for a long time. But we will be back very soon. Okay. Thank you. I can't do this, man. Please don't make me do this. You're not making me. Why am I making myself do this? I don't want to do this. It's disrespectful. It's perverse. It's like ranking my children. I can't. All right, fine. I got to do it. I'm doing it. Look out. Top five funniest moments from This Is Spinal Tap. Here we go. Number five. This is the funniest movie ever made. Yes, this is Spinal Tap, the 1984 fake rock band documentary, the rockumentary, if you will, directed by Rob Reiner. Spinal Tap, one of England's loudest bands. They've got armadillos in their trousers. The numbers on this amp all go to 11. It's such a fine line between stupid and clever. What's wrong with being sexy? What's the difference between golf and miniature golf? You can't really dust for vomit. As long as there's sex and drugs, I can do without the rock and roll. I'm sure I'd feel much worse if I weren't under such heavy sedation. You get me. I love this movie. I can't rank jokes from this movie. I refuse. Forget it. The top five funniest moments from This Is Spinal Tap are just the first 60 seconds or so of this song in chronological order. This song is called Big Bottom. That's what I said. Number four.
or so I have read. Holy shit. Funniest movie ever made. It helps if you're familiar with actual rad, but also unintentionally hilarious 70s rock and roll documentaries like Led Zeppelin's The Song Remains the Same or the band's The Last Waltz or the Who's The Kids Are All Right or even the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter. The super pompousness, the obliviousness, the heavy sedation, the not sexy sexistness of this rock star doofus milieu. When it comes to parodies or mockumentaries or whatever, sure, it helps to be well-versed in what's being mocked. Sure, but that familiarity is not necessary to enjoy This Is Spinal Tap or to rightfully appreciate it as the funniest movie ever made. Because, and this bears repeating, this song is called Big Bottom. Time for the pre-chorus. Number three. Greatest pre-chorus ever written. Simple, beautiful, classic. Oh my God. Time for the chorus. Number two. I would pay $1,000 to sit in a crowded movie theater on a Friday night in 1984 watching This Is Spinal Tap for the first time amid a raucous crowd of delighted armadillo-trousered immature dudes. Dudes is a gender-neutral term, but yeah, okay, it's mostly dudes. That's fine. Also watching This Is Spinal Tap for the first time, I would pay $1,000 just to experience this moment the chorus of Big Bottom, for the first time, I can hear my ecstatic, uncontrollable giggling harmonizing with the ecstatic, uncontrollable giggling of everyone around me. Truly, it's a beautiful day. Truly, this is the moment I'm stuck in and I don't want to get out of it. Truly, I finally found what I'm looking for. Number one. How can I leave this behind? Yes, that's the single funniest moment in the funniest movie ever made. Meet Spinal Tap. On guitar and lead vocals, David St. Hubbins, played by Michael McKean. Tell them your life philosophy, David. I believe virtually everything I read, and I think that is what makes me more of a selective human than someone who doesn't believe anything. Stupendous on lead guitar, Nigel Tufnell, played by Christopher Guest. Tell them about that beautiful piano piece you're working on, Nigel. Yeah, well, it's part of a uh, a trilogy, really, a musical trilogy that I'm doing in D minor, which I always find is really the saddest of all keys, really. I don't know why, but it makes people weep instantly to play it. It may be a good idea in your day-to-day life to avoid the sort of person who can quote every single line of dialogue from the 1984 film, This Is Spinal Tap. And I am saying this as very much that sort of person. Tell them your influences and what this beautiful piano piece is called, Nigel. 
Um, very much like I'm really influenced by Mozart and Bach, and it's sort of in between those. It's really, it's like a Mach piece, really. It's, what do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, Lick My Love Pump. Incredible. David St. Hubbins and Nigel Tufnell are best friends and musical geniuses. Visionaries, like poets. Shelley or Byron, people like that. On bass, Derek Smalls, played by Harry Shearer. Tell them your role in the band, Derek. The two totally distinct types of visionaries. It's like fire and ice, basically. Mm-hmm. You see, you know, I feel my role is to, in the band is to be kind of in the middle of that, kind of like lukewarm water. Unbelievable. Their drummers keep dying by a bizarre gardening accident or via choking on someone else's vomit or via spontaneous combustion. Don't get me started on This Is Spinal Tap. I've already started. Don't let me continue on This Is Spinal Tap. When they get lost backstage in Cleveland and they can't find the door to the actual stage and they just wander around going, Hello, Cleveland. Fantastic scene. However... Anyone born in Cleveland has heard Hello Cleveland like 10,000 times. Attention all lead singers of rock bands playing shows in Cleveland, Ohio. You, sir or madam, are not the first rock star in history to yell Hello Cleveland at a bunch of Clevelanders from the stage at your show in Cleveland. You are, in fact, the billionth person to do that the collective groan from the crowd of actual clevelanders getting hit with their billionth hello cleveland will be louder than your band you know the old cliche of somebody in the crowd you're like free bird it's that but now it's you the rock star yelling the dumb cliche at us you have fantastic taste in movies but knock it off this movie though this is spinal tap is the best man When they're listening to excerpts from mean old album reviews, I played this for you already at some point, but I'm sorry. This is happening again. The review you had on Shark Sandwich, which was merely a two-word review, just said, shit sandwich. Um, (laughs) Had they print that? Where'd they print that? That's not real. You can't print that. I'm sorry that just happened again. Focus, Rob, focus. The rock and roll creation scene. The scene in which Spinal Tap are on stage in Milwaukee, performing their prog rock mini epic rock and roll creation. And David and Nigel and Derek all start off encased in their own giant purple pods, uh, plastic vertical cocoons. And the cocoons open up as they start playing, but Derek's cocoon malfunctions and won't open. So he's trapped in there for the whole song playing his bass vertically while a roadie with a hammer and a blowtorch tries to pry him out. If we are seriously ranking Spinal Tap scenes, the malfunctioning rock and roll creation pod is top 10. For sure. It's not quite as funny as Stonehenge, but it's a little funnier than the Jazz Odyssey. But we're not actually ranking scenes from This is Spinal Tap because that would be disrespectful and perverse. Okay, this movie doesn't work unless the fake band works for real. 
This is Spinal Tap, the movie. Can only be great if Spinal Tap, the band, are great. Spinal Tap got some jams, man. Tonight, I'm going to rock you tonight. Jam. You're too young and I'm too well hung just glides right by you, don't it? Spinal Tap put out actual albums and actually toured IRL in 1992, in fact. Spinal Tap. Still Michael McKean, Christopher Guest, and Harry Shearer in character as David, Nigel, and Derek. The band put out an album called Break Like the Wind. That's pretty good. <laughs> Wikipedia informs me that the title Break Like the Wind is a double entendre that combines and confuses the idiom make like the wind with the idiom break wind, a euphemism for flatulence. It's very helpful. Thank you, Wikipedia. Now, Spinal Tap are funny on purpose, obviously. Spinal Tap are not technically a self-parody because they are actually a parody, but Spinal Tap nonetheless illuminates one of the sacred commandments of rock and roll, which is to truly laugh at or laugh with, but usually laugh at a rock band. You have to love that band. You have to respect them or better yet, revere them. Even your most caustic derision is rooted in sincere affection. That band has to be truly great, truly worthy of both your adulation and your mockery. It's no fun, really, laughing at a terrible band doing laughably inept shit. That's just empty ridicule and contempt. That's just new metal, right? No offense to new metal, not really, but come on. No, the funniest bands in rock history, the funniest bands intentionally and unintentionally, the famous bands with the best senses of humor, and the famous bands with no sense of humor whatsoever. These are often among the biggest and best and raddest bands in rock history as well. We mock because we love. We cheer them on even as we cringe. We scoff at their hubris through genuine tears of joy and catharsis. We are the lukewarm water pooling at the feet of all their visionary fire and ice. And we genuflect, even in the face of their most catastrophic failures. This is the story of another all-time great rock band eating another shark sandwich. This is what it sounds like when it works the way it's supposed to work. How it's supposed to work is the mega famous Irish rock band U2 are crammed inside a 35 foot high mirror ball in the shape of a giant lemon. Rolling Stone says the lemon's 35 feet high. A super intense and thorough magazine called Live Design that interviews people about their bonkers, elaborate stage setups. Live Design says the lemon's 40 feet high. I'm going with Live Design. These people know their shit. The shorthand for 40 feet, by the way, is 40 with one quote mark after it. You know, the shorthand for 40 inches is 40 with a double quote mark, right? Just in case you're ever sketching the design 
for say a Stonehenge replica on a napkin, you don't want to confuse the symbols for feet and inches, lest you end up with a Stonehenge monument on stage that is in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. That tends to understate the hugeness of the object. I'm sorry. Focus. Focus. You can hold and control it now, but you can't bag it. So a giant mirror ball lemon opens up, and whoop, there's U2. Mega famous Irish rock band U2. This is not unexpected. U2's presence in the giant mirror ball lemon. We are live in Santiago, Chile on February 11th, 1998. And the fellas are performing their usual encore during U2's fabled Pop Mart tour. An extra extravagant and super extra ludicrous stadium tour to promote the band's ninth album, Pop, released in 1997 to mild derision. Or at least mild confusion, or anyway, only relatively mild acclaim. Not an especially loved U2 album. This song is called Discotech. It's the first track on pop. It's also the first single. No one likes Discotech. Anyone who tells you they like Discotech is lying. Don't fall for it. You remember that Taylor Swift song, Me? Me, all caps, exclamation point, the first single off her Lover album from 2019. The song's super dorky. And everyone watched the video for me and was like, oh, no. Discotech is the me of U2 singles. Or I guess chronologically, me is the discotech of Taylor Swift singles. I don't care for this U2 song. I'm sorry. I'm exaggerating for comic effect here. But then again, maybe I'm not. So the giant lemon slowly twirls around while a remix of the U2 song Lemon is playing. And it lands on a little second stage. The lemon opens up. Whoop, U2. You two are dressed in the red kits for the Chile national football team who made the knockout stage of the 1998 World Cup. You two look like none of this is their idea or preference. You two have a stiff, stoic, awkward, almost embarrassed aura to them, standing in the giant mirror ball lemon before descending the giant mirror ball lemon's stairs. First comes guitarist David Evans, known professionally as The Edge. The Edge would be a pretty pompous stage name if not for the fact that The Edge is one of the raddest guitar players of his generation, or for that matter, any previous or subsequent generation. So actually, therefore, The Edge is an incredibly cool stage name. The Edge makes the sign of the cross before exiting the lemon. Then comes bassist Adam Clayton. Then comes drummer Larry Mullen Jr. Larry Mullen Jr., who had recently told David Letterman on the fabled Late Show with David Letterman that, quote, there is something quite funny about four patties walking out of a 40-foot lemon, end quote. He's right. And it is somewhat intentionally funny. I leave it to you, though, whether it's a little bit unintentionally funny as well. And then there is Bono. Just can't get enough of that love and dove stuff. 
that's a super rad guitar riff, actually. First of all, that kicks ass. The edge is the best, dude. Okay, fine. I like discotech. It's just that I don't like discotech as much as I enjoy performatively hating discotech. You know how it goes. But yeah, Bono. Born Paul Hewson. International rock star. He is wearing rock star sunglasses and wearing some sort of bubble suit and holding a soccer ball and singing earnestly about how you just can't get enough of that lovey-dovey stuff. And right when that super rad guitar riff kicks in, burn or burn he kicks the soccer ball into the crowd and it's all quite ridiculous and yet also super cool because that's the gig that's how it's supposed to work but then there's the time in oslo norway when the 40-foot lemon didn't open And it's tremendously important to me, for some reason, that you picture them there. Bono, The Edge, Adam, and Larry, stuck in this 40-foot lemon, and they can't get out of it, in front of roughly 40,000 baffled Norwegians as the Perfecto remix of Lemon blares over the PA. Perfecto being the production team of Paul Oakenfold and Steve Osborne. The Lemon also broke down during shows in Sydney, Australia, in Osaka, Japan, but Oslo is the most famous, the most infamous of the lemon malfunction incidents. And this sordid tale endures as a monument to U2's late 90s hubris. And yes, indeed, any reference anywhere to the time U2 got stuck in a 40-foot mirror ball lemon is legally required to refer to this moment as U2's spinal tap moment. U2 eventually scampered out of an escape hatch round back of the lemon, uh, perhaps while thinking to themselves, on what day did God create the Pop Mart Tour production designer and couldn't God have rested on that day too? The Pop Mart Tour, designed and directed by Willie Williams. He's great, actually. He's an industry giant. Everyone is glad God didn't rest on the day he created Willie Williams. The Pop Mart Tour also consisted of a 12-foot-wide olive mounted on a 100-foot-tall cocktail stick, along with an additional 100-foot-high McDonald's-esque golden arch and a 165-foot-wide video screen consisting of 1 million blue LED modules and carrying a price tag of $6 million. This tour was announced at a Kmart in Manhattan in the lingerie department. The Kmart in Astor Place, if you know it. I loved that Kmart. I used to buy boxes of frosted hot fudge Sunday Pop-Tarts at that Kmart during my stress-eating years in New York City music journalism. That Kmart finally closed in 2021, but my stress-eating era is ongoing. And the Pop-Mart tour premiered in, where else, Las Vegas. Uh, during that Las Vegas show, according to Willie Williams' journals, there was so much dry ice pumped on stage that the edge couldn't see his own feet to hit his guitar pedals. So the Edge had to kneel down and fumble around trying to find them. And the Edge thought to himself, it has finally happened. 
I am Derek Smalls. This is Spinal Tap. You two were one of the biggest bands of the 80s. And unlike most of the biggest bands of the 80s, you two were also one of the biggest bands of the 90s. Even if, by 1997, Bono would be sitting in the lingerie section of a Kmart and saying, I can't quite recall how it got to the idea of taking a supermarket on the road. I remember it making a lot of sense at the time. As I'm sitting here, I'm trying to think what that reason is. End quote. Laugh at him if you want. But the people laughing at Bono the hardest and loudest are the ones who love him the most. Is it getting better? Or do you feel the same? This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time and the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think Ugg season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from Ugg. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. Ugg has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the golden collection at Ugg.com. And here's why we love him so much. My name is Rob Harvilla. This is the 104th episode of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And this week, we are talking about one by U2 from their 1991 album, Octung Baby, released in November 1991, just two months or so after Nirvana's Nevermind. Two tremendous enthusiasm and acclaim and rapture because it's probably U2's best album and one is probably U2's best song. Probably not my favorite U2 song, but yeah, probably the best. Will it make it easier on you now? You got someone to blame. And it is easier on me when I can blame Bono for things. Yes. And I've gotten in quite a bit of trouble for sassing Bono in public forums, but I wouldn't sass him if I didn't love the way he delivers the word night. The echo on Bono's voice on that one word, night, the enormousness of it, but the frailty of it as well. The sense of both grandeur and loneliness, the arrogance of his vulnerability. This is a man who deserves to travel by a 40-foot-tall mirror ball lemon if that's what he wants to do, even if he gets stuck in it and he also forgot why he wanted to do any of it in the first place. Okay. This comes up from time to time, but it's really the only way for me to convey to you the intensity of my personal and public relationship 
with the super famous Irish rock band U2. Early 2001. I've been out of college for less than a year. My stress-eating years in music journalism have formally begun. I am working as an arts writer at an alt-weekly newspaper in Columbus, Ohio, but sometimes I freelance. I write the occasional jovial blurb for another alt-weekly up in Cleveland, Scene Magazine in Cleveland, a newspaper my mother reads. Scene Magazine in Cleveland assigns me like a 150-word preview blurb of an upcoming U2 concert. U2 played Gundarina in downtown Cleveland, G-U-N-D Arena. I don't want to talk about it. On May 3rd, 2001, U2 were on their much less derided Elevation Tour, promoting their rapturously received 2000 comeback album, All That You Can't Leave Behind. That's the record with Beautiful Day, Stuck in a Moment You Can't Get Out of, Walk On, etc. Big record. Great record. Notably, U2, on this night in 2001 at Gund Arena in Cleveland, played exactly zero songs off pop. Their previous troubled album from 1997 that necessitated a comeback. Didn't even play discotheque. I don't know what I wrote. All right? What I wrote is lost to history. It doesn't matter. It wasn't that bad. Whatever it was. The essence of what I wrote was like, Oh, you too. You too's coming to town. Oh, sure. Okay, whatever. You too. Remember the giant lemon that got stuck in it? It's like spinal tap. <laughs> oh, big comeback. You too. Duh, duh, whatever. Go see this if you want, but it's probably sold out. Oh, that's what I wrote. It's fine. This is not Pulitzer Prize material, this blurb. This is not incisive criticism, but it's fine. Relax. But a few angry scene magazine readers took umbrage with the snarky and dismissive tone of this blurb, and they wrote mean letters to the editor about me. One of those angry readers was my mother. I have to question your criteria for hiring music writers. It seems that you have one too many young punks whose heads are still stuck in the Seattle grunge era and who apparently know squat about good rock music. As a longtime YouTube fan, I have to take issue with Rob Harvilla's short-sighted preview of the Elevation Tour. I was at the concert. <clears throat> it was one of several YouTube concerts I've attended, and I can assure you that the band is better than ever, and Bono is still a rock and roll god. This is my actual mother, Barb Harvilla, reading her actual letter to the editor published in Scene Magazine in May 2001. This letter is not lost to history. Oh, sure. This you can still read on the internet. Sure. This is my mother doing a dramatic reading of this letter on the Pulitzer Prize winning podcast Bandsplain, hosted by our dear friend Yasi Salik in the U2 episode from 2021, which otherwise consisted of Yasi and I discussing U2 in great detail for like four and a half hours. I don't think anyone remembers anything I said in that Bandsplain episode. No, they just remember my mom. I suppose we can't expect much from a writer whose favorite bands while growing up included Hall & Oates, MC Hammer, and yes, even Vanilla Ice. But it's particularly disturbing to me since I bought Rob's very first concert ticket. At the age of 14, he went to see U2 and thought they were, in quotes, the bomb. Not the bomb. As parents, we do the best we can, 
but we can't control the direction our kids take when they grow up. This too shall pass. We'll still set a place for Rob at Thanksgiving dinner. Barb Carfilla, Rob's mom. Did I really say the bomb? I don't know if I said the bomb. That doesn't sound like me. That doesn't sound like me even at 14. That does sound like me. That sounds like me now. I probably did say the bomb. All right. You two are an important band in my family. Strong U2 opinions in my families. In the early 80s, my cool uncle Steve, my mom's older brother, he saw U2 in Cleveland at the Agora Ballroom. U2 were billed as modern music from Ireland. Their debut album from 1980 was called Boy, which contains the first of the roughly 50 U2 songs you are intimately familiar with, even if you have never listened to this band by choice even once in your whole life. That song's called I Will Follow. You know it. Cool Uncle Steve's a U2 fan now and a fan for life. So is my cool Uncle Nick. So is my cool Aunt Julie. And so is my mom. U2 formed in Dublin, Ireland in 1976 as students at Mount Temple Comprehensive School. They go from their debut album, Boy, in 1980 to October in 1981 to War in 1983. Now one's got Sunday, Bloody Sunday, and New Year's Day. That's where the shit really starts going down. To the unforgettable fire in 1984. To the big one, the first truly big one, the Joshua Tree in 1987 u2 ain't playing ballrooms no more it's arenas now we lived in st louis missouri for a while and my mom goes to see u2 on october 25th 1987 at the st louis arena the hockey arena the st louis blues play there and later my mom describes it to me the lights go down the arena starts out pitch dark and u2 walk out in the dark and they start their first song where the streets have no name and slowly the lights come on in different parts of the arena as the song builds up steam and as the edge one of the great guitar players of his or any other generation earns the right to call himself that And I can picture it so vividly, right? That guitar riff I've heard 300,000 times. Crescendoing as the lights slowly go up. One of the great album openers and concert openers in rock and roll history. One of the great adrenaline rushes in the accumulated history of mankind. Where the streets have no name is truly great because of its simplicity. It's audacity, it's recklessness, it's earnestness, it's fearlessness, it's lack of restraint. This is a stadium anthem, unapologetically. You two are not playing it cool. You two are not trying to be cool. You two are trying to be great. You two are trying to be the greatest, which means being the hugest. And this is the precise moment when you two become definitely the hugest and very arguably the greatest.
Because the only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with 14,000 screaming fans in a hockey arena when you're uncool. And I'm not at this show in St. Louis in 1987 because I'm like nine and it's past my bedtime and I'm still a Hall and Oates man, apparently. But this is where my awareness of and affinity for U2 starts, right? With a cover of the Joshua Tree, right? The very somber and formal and maximum rock star black and white Joshua Tree cover shot by Anton Corbin, the band flush to the left, the somber and majestic expanse of the American West stretching away to the horizon on the right. Incredibly pretentious and unbelievably awesome album cover. I can close my eyes now and so vividly see the Joshua Tree cover. And I can also see the Bloom County parody Joshua Tree cover. Bloom County, the famous rad surrealist comic strip. Opus the Penguin, Steve Dallas, Bill Cat. You two are already ripe for parody in 1987, but it is parody born of love of reverence, of awe, or at least of respect. Write one song as fantastic as Where the Streets Have No Name and the world will make fun of you forever and nothing anybody says about you will ever matter. Bono wrote an autobiography called Surrender, 40 Songs, One Story, came out in 2021. And he says, quote, U2's music was never really rock and roll. Under its contemporary skin, it's opera, a big music, big emotions unlocked in the pop music of the day, a tenor out front who won't accept he's a baritone, a small man singing giant songs, wailing, keening, trying to explain the unexplainable, trying to release himself and anyone who will listen from the prison of a human experience that cannot explain grief, end quote. Primarily, Bono is grieving his mother, Iris, who died after having a brain aneurysm at her own father's funeral in 1974. Bono was only 14 at the time. In his book, he also says, songs are my prayers. Songs are also where I live. If you live in your songs, you want to make sure there's enough room. End quote. There's too much grief and ambition and adrenaline and defiance powering this band to bother with subtlety or apology or embarrassment at the idea of stadium rock stardom. In 1988, U2 put out an album and a rockumentary called Rattle and Hum, which has quite a bit of Spinal Tap style pompousness. To it. Both This Is Spinal Tap and Rattle and Hum have scenes where the band visits Graceland. Elvis Presley's Graceland. That's all I'm saying. But yeah, there's Bono on stage in a leather vest with no shirt and a cowboy hat and an acoustic guitar that by his own admission he can't play very well strapped across his back. On a steel horse he rides and Bono's leading you two through a song called Silver and Gold a song about South Africa under apartheid. And Bono's delivering an earnest and ferocious anti-apartheid speech. Am I bugging you? I didn't mean to bug you. And then he says something very corny, 
that becomes, through the primal spiritual alchemical power of rock and roll, the coolest thing you can possibly say. Okay, Edge, play the blues. Don't say, okay, Edge, play the blues in public unless you're Bono. One of the great front men of his or any other generation. And he's five foot six, by the way, Bono. He's not a small man, but he's an inch shorter than Tom Cruise. But don't tell either of them I said that. Don't say, okay, Edge, play the blues unless you're Bono talking to the Edge. One of the greatest guitarists of, yeah, you get it. Okay, you too. A proudly gigantic stadium rock band now entering the 90s. When rock bands are not supposed to be proud that they're gigantic. Hugeness, fame, success, adulation, anthemia. Rock bands ain't supposed to want any of that in the 90s. Or at least they're supposed to act like they don't want it. The hugest rock bands, especially. The 80s had Sting and Axl Rose, the 90s have Eddie Vedder and Kurt Cobain. I do not want what I have got. You two in the 90s. Yeah, this is going to go great. And at least at first, it does. I spent like 30% of the late 80s and early 90s just driving around with my mom, listening to pop radio as we'd run errands and visit my various cool aunts and uncles, Uh, me riding shotgun as an awkward kid in an embryonic surly teen. It was a huge moment for both of us when mom finally bought a new car, a Toyota Camry. I think it was green. And mom says to me, it's very important, the first song we play in this new car. It can't just be any song. This is important. We have to christen it. Then mom put on U2's 1991 album, Octung Baby, and we listened to the first song, Zoo Station, as she drove us in her brand new car to Pizza Hut. Or maybe we just drove past the Pizza Hut. Pizza Hut was definitely involved. I do know that. We were heading east on Route 18. Or maybe I got a free book it pizza at Pizza Hut. I could ask her, but I'm not going to bother my mom with this. Brian Eno, egghead super producer and longtime U2 co-conspirator. Brian Eno described to Rolling Stone in 1991 the vibe around the Octung Baby recording sessions, which started in Berlin. He says... Buzzwords on this record were trashy, throwaway, dark, sexy, and industrial, all good, and earnest, polite, sweet, righteous, raucous, and linear, all bad. It was good if a song took you on a journey or made you think your hi-fi was broken. Bad if it reminded you of recording studios or you too. End quote. Bono's vocals on Zoo Station, overseen by fellow super producer Daniel Lenoir, are designed to make you think that your new Toyota Camry stereo is broken.
1991, the Berlin Wall has come down. The USSR has collapsed. Nelson Mandela is free. These are not vague, insignificant events to a rock band as sociopolitically ambitious and earnest as you two. They were alive and they waited for this. Right here, right now, there is no other place they'd want to be. Right here, right now, watching the world wake up from history. And you two chose, amid all this global momentousness and cautious optimism, to make their trashy, throwaway, dark, sexy, industrial album. You know what the best song on Octune Baby is? Let's start there, actually. The best song on this record is called Acrobat. This song kicks astounding quantities of ass. Angry-sounding U2 songs are the best, dude. They are rare and precious jewels of stadium-sized grouchiness. Bullet the Blue Sky, Sunday Bloody Sunday. My experience of Octoon Baby in real time, right, as a 13-year-old, as an embryonic surly teen, is that I'm getting super heavy into alternative rock. Right? Pearl Jam's 10 is 1991. So is Nevermind. So is Blood Sugar Sex Magic. So is REM's Out of Time while we're talking beloved 80s bands skillfully navigating the 90s. And I'm sitting there at 13 trying to decide if U2, this already colossal band my mother loves, does U2 qualify as alternative rock? Are they allies or are they the enemy? Are they the rock? that alternative rock is an alternative to. And so I'd hear Mysterious Ways, the first big Octune Baby single on the radio amidst alive and smells like teen spirit and give it away in rusty cage. And comparatively, Mysterious Ways sounds quite earnest, polite, sweet, righteous, raucist, and linear, but not in a pejorative way necessarily. And yeah, sure, Mysterious Ways is a great song, but it ain't no fucking acrobat. Do you know what the second best song on Octone Baby is? This is my current fixation. This is my favorite song on the record right now. Holy shit. Okay, Edge, play the blues. The Fly is the second best song on Octoon Baby, if only for the guitar solo. Is there a musical term for a guitar solo that gloriously goes on for so long that the song shifts back into the chorus mid-guitar solo? Do you know what I'm saying? I love that shit. I'm suddenly swearing a lot more. Sorry, Mom. The trashiness is infectious. But yeah, this shit is the best. That's the first word of the chorus there. Bono singing in an earnestly shaky falsetto. It's very sweet. I love that song. Part of the greatness of Octoon Baby is this emotional volatility 
the spectacle of a fundamentally earnest stadium rock band trying very, very, very hard to sound trashy and throwaway and hedonistic. And it's not that you two fail to sound debauched. It's that even their debauchery has a soulful, a profoundly spiritual quality. You know the 33 and a third book series, those rad little books on classic albums? The 33 and a third book on Octung Baby, written by a guy named Stephen Contanzarite, is really great and really explicitly argues that Octung Baby is a concept album about Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden after the fall of man, where the devil tricked them into eating the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Stephen argues for example, that the song Until the End of the World is about Judas betraying Jesus in another garden after the Last Supper. In the garden I was playing the tide. I kissed your lips and broke your heart. Vocally, you can always tell when Bono's inherent earnestness starts sneaking into his attempted trashiness. Uh, when he starts sounding like Leonard Cohen. Just a little. Just a little bit. You, you are acting like it was the end of the world. There's Edge, still playing the blues. Octung Baby in late 1991 sounded like the future. The future of U2, the future of stadium rock, and also the future of rock and roll with or without the scare quotes. And bonus points, if your revolutionary futuristic rock album sounds like the future right near the beginning of a new decade. It might sound superficial, but that shit matters, zeitgeist-wise. Far better this album comes out in 1991 versus 1996. And I'll let you decide what it means, zeitgeist-wise, that the most beloved song on U2's best album of the 90s sounds the most like U2 in the 80s. Bono's delivery of the word in two there, the way his voice breaks, that's why he's the best. Did you know that Axl Rose from Guns N' Roses, Axl Rose loves the U2 song, One? In the U2 biography, U2 at the End of the World, came out in 1995, written by Bill Flanagan. Axl Rose, in that book, he says, I think One is one of the greatest songs to have ever been written. I put the song on and just broke down crying. It was such a release. It was really good for me. I was really upset that my ex-wife and I never had a chance because of the damage in our lives. We didn't have a chance, and I hadn't fully accepted that. The song helped me see it. I wanted to write Bono a letter just saying, your record's done a lot for me. End quote. Let's gently sidestep the sordid details of Axl Rose's marriage and just focus on the image of Axl crying to a U2 song. We're one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other, carry each other. The Edge plays the blues even when the Edge only plays like four or five notes. Remarkable. Octung Baby was not an easy record for you two to make. 
A lot of false starts, a lot of bickering, a lot of internal division. The distant and super unlikely, but somehow still looming threat of a breakup. Think the Beatles making the White Album. Think Spinal Tap post Stonehenge. That YouTube biography from 1995 talks about Octung Baby as a battle between the hats and the haircuts. Bono and the Edge were the hats. They wanted innovation, new direction. Hip-hop, dance music, electronica. Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr. were the haircuts. The rhythm section that wanted to go back to basics. The old divide, the past versus the future. The 80s versus the 90s. And one was the bridge. The turning point. The peace offering. The song everyone could agree on. In the book, Bill Flanagan says, It came to them all together. And it came easily. Like a gift. My mother, in her quite rude and unnecessary letter to the editor about me, is correct in stating that she did take me to my first U2 concert at Richfield Coliseum in Cleveland on March 26th, 1992 promoting Octung Baby, the fabled zoo TV tour, which had, for its time, an elaborate and super pricey stage setup designed to bombard the audience with information. Information overload. The cars hanging from the ceiling, the myriad TV screens and jumbotrons, the doctored clip of President George Herbert Walker Bush saying, we will, we will rock you all the static and noise and bluster and first of all i am quite charmed now by 80s and 90s rock bands playing with the idea of information overload right and they're mostly complaining about television the proliferation the perniciousness of cable television so many channels Bruce Springsteen's 57 channels and nothing on. Duran Duran's too much information. All the way back to the Buggles video killed the radio star. Here's Bono somewhere along the zoo TV tour in a bright, gaudy silver suit doing his adorable televangelist shtick. Television. Television is the worst, most suffocating form of mass media that will ever exist. I love this shit. I'm overwhelmed by TV. It's so quaint. I'm like, oh man, Bruce, 57 channels. That's so many channels. That's terrible. You can't watch all that. How are you supposed to absorb that much data? It's dehumanizing. Wow. 57. Wow. Anyway, did you hear... That Livy rizzed up baby Gronk for clout. Like, I want to just go back in time and log Bruce or Tom York or Bono or whoever onto the internet, right? Just to watch them keel over like one of those fainting goats. Oh, CNN is giving you information overload in 1991. That's hilarious. Please stand by. I loved that Zoo TV tour. I bought the t shirt. My mom probably bought me the t shirt. Black t shirt. White sort of finger paint, vertical drawing of a face, a star, and then a car. I love that shirt. I got to buy that shirt on the internet. But what I learned 
at my first U2 show was that U2 have a very specific type of song that nobody other than U2 can pull off. And each of those songs has a specific moment, an ecstatic, exultant, genuinely climactic, ultra rock star moment that no other band is capable of. This moment. My producer just cut in to say that I'm not allowed to use the word rizzed ever again. That's fair. That moment on With or Without You from the Joshua Tree in 87, which is an echo of this moment. That moment on Bad. From the Unforgettable Fire in 84, which nicely harmonizes, just a few years later, with this moment. That moment on All I Want Is You from Rattle and Hum in 88, and also the Reality Bites soundtrack. Talk all the trash you want about you too. Why am I addressing you there? I can talk all the trash I want about you too, right? But you too and you too only are capable of that moment. The Apex Mountain power ballad moment. This moment. You say love is a temple. Do you mind terribly if I tap in Mary J. Blige just for a second? Am I bugging you? I didn't mean to bug you. I'm just kidding. I'm guessing you don't mind at all. There's a strong argument that in the 90s, at least, U2 peaks on one. I don't think this band's next two albums are going to make Axl Rose cry. Put it that way. Zoo Ropa in 1993, which is relatively hastily assembled and feels a little bit like Zoo TV tour merchandise. Zoo Ropa announces itself with the edge mumbling through a song literally called Numb. And this song kicks ass, actually, but it does not immediately broadcast all the ass it intends to kick. And anyway, Numb sounded hilarious on the radio in 1993. Too much is not enough. It's hilarious. Stand by. Bono. Great video for Numb, but yeah, no. The most resonant song on Zuropa will sound a little less futuristic and instead give us yet another one of those moments. This moment. That moment. From Stay Far Away So Close, 
That's stay, parentheses, far away, comma, so close, exclamation point, close parentheses. The ascending baseline right there. The god Adam Clayton. The hats need the haircuts. I will not further disparage U2's 1997 album Pop. It's pretty good. It's fine. But nor will I argue that pop is some underappreciated super classic that has one of those moments, right? That's pushing it. Please is a pretty good U2 song, but no, no, not quite. You know what pop has? Pop has an inversion of one of those moments. Pop has my favorite super weird U2 song, which just happens to be called Mofo. I don't know, man. Something about Bono in a trashy, throwaway, dark, sexy, industrial, maybe my car radio is broken voice, singing the words, looking for the father of my two little girls. It just does it for me. This is the moment, actually, or the potential that moment. You can imagine Mofo reconfigured as a classic U2 90s via 80s Apex Mountain power ballad that peaks right about here. That's what he said. This is the stadium rock catharsis moment where with or without you and all I want is you and bad and one all gloriously collide. Instead, Mofo is an inversion, a perversion. This was the opening song on the accursed Pop Mart tour with the giant olive and the giant lemon and whatnot. The tour that the Irish Times will explore in a 2018 article with the headline Pop Mart. Were you two making a joke, or was the joke on them? Is it just that the lyrics on Mofo are so raw that Bono buried them in distortion and irony and 1997-style information overload? Go ask him. I'm sure he'll tell you. Nobody enjoys overloading you with information more than Bono does. In But right here, he's still a 14-year-old boy mourning the loss of his mother. Everything else is just a distraction. What he's singing is the signal. Everything else is just noise. Do not fixate on the 40-foot-tall mirror ball lemon. Tonight, you two are going to rock you tonight, and this is how they're going to rock you. In that Irish Times article, ruminating on the giant lemon, the folly of it all, Bono says, I think we did it to ourselves. We thought because there was so much discussion about the biggest tour, the biggest lemon, the biggest this, the biggest that, way in advance of the tour, we thought we'd have some fun with that. Maybe we shouldn't have. The reason people come to see us in the end is to hear our songs. End quote. Mofo is not the song patrons of the Pop Mart tour came to hear. Tickets were like 50 bucks, by the way. Super expensive. People were pissed. Please stand by. But Mofo sets the ideal tone for the Pop Mart tour. A celebration of you 2 at both their cleverest and their stupidest. And it's all designed so this line just passes you by. Now I'm still 
Now I'm still a child, no one tells me no. The giant lemon is a perfect example of no one telling Bono no. One is a perfect example of why no one ever will. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less, and one because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. We are so lucky to get to talk once again with Annie Zaleski, author and critic and famous Ohioan. She's written books on Duran Duran and Lady Gaga. And on October 26th, she will publish This Is Christmas, song by song, the stories behind 100 holiday hits. Annie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me back. Of course. Uh, Annie, when I say just you two in the 90s, what's the first thing you think of? The first album, song, video, tour, anything? Do you think of Octung Baby? Do you think of pop? What sums up this band in this decade for you? You know, it's funny, Very so many things, but I think Octung Baby is what I gravitate toward because I think that was why I first saw the videos there. That was kind of like their transitional period. And I just love McFisto, which I'm sure we'll talk about <laughs> later. <laughs> McFisto is a great place to start. I That that was my first time seeing them on tour was, was Zoo TV, was this tour. So that was my first exposure to McFisto and really to my first exposure to Bono's whole deal. Like, when did you get into this band and like how did you wrap your head around this band in real time so it's funny i think i really started getting into them um around octune baby now mm -hmm. my dad was a u2 fan so I'll, I'll have that caveat he had joshua tree on cd he taped yeah. war from the library so there must have been u2 like percolating in my house but mm -hmm. i think octune baby was definitely like my first u2 record I was going to say, like, you're a little younger than me, but broadly, we were both teenagers in the 90s. Like, did you two feel like yours? Did they feel like a 90s band for 90s kids the way like Radiohead did? You know, they really did, which is so like hmm. funny to think about now. But, you know, to me, probably yeah. because they were on MTV all the time. They were on right. MTV next to Nirvana and like Pearl Jam <laughs> and R.E.M. And like Bono yeah. was wearing leather and like they didn't like look old. They felt very youthful. <laughs> they and so they felt like all the bands I liked. 
they did feel they did look well preserved they felt yes. well preserved as well but uh, yeah it's so weird chronologically to think that Octoon Baby comes out two months after Nevermind you know and I was going to ask like, did you think of Nirvana and U2 specifically as peers as antagonists like do you two count as alternative rock to you they do and I think what's so interesting I, I actually think I bought uh, never mind an Octoon Baby in the same like Columbia House order at yes, one point. Yes, so I think that's yes. the Pierce thing. But I think like a lot of 80s bands around that time or or older artists like Bowie and Duran Duran and Tears for Fears, all of those artists were putting out new music. So they didn't feel like 80s bands to me. They felt very current. They felt very modern. And so I didn't see you two as being some sort of, you know, like seasoned act reinventing themselves. They were just sort of you two on Zoo TV, on MTV. Same deal with R.E.M. for me. You know, Out of Time in 91 was the first R.E.M. record I got into. And, like, I knew they had a rich prehistory that, like, people preferred in general. But they felt new to me, and therefore they felt new overall. Absolutely. You know, and R.E.M., the same thing as Out of Time, Automatic for the People. Mm-hmm. You know, I obviously love all of their early records, but, you know, the emotional attachment I first had was to all of those early 90s records. And so I yeah. think that is the generational gap. You know, a lot of people who are older would think that's blasphemy, but yeah. that's just the way it is. For us, it's just natural. It, it exactly. makes total sense. Is Octoon Baby the best thing they ever did? Like, I think my personal rankings are super boring. Like, it's Octoon Baby, Joshua Tree, then, you know, Onward. What, what's what's your deal there? See, I'm the weirdo because I actually, I love all of the weird U2. So I think October mm. is still my favorite U2 wow. record. Wow, okay. I know. And pop. Okay. I, I do love pop. Okay, but I think, all right. I know. But I think Octoon <laughs> Baby is probably, I think, Overall, I think it's their best record. But I think when I think about personal favorites, definitely Octoon Baby, then Pop and October. Let's start with October, actually, which is their second record. Like, I think for a lot of people, like, Boy, Blah, 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 War, right at the beginning. That's the underloved record from the first three. It doesn't have, like, a major Sunday, Bloody Sunday, or I Will Follow type hit. Like, what what's it about October for you? You know, I think October, it was a lot moodier than boy for Hmm. starters um i think the instrumentation adam clayton's uh, bass playing on that record i think is phenomenal i think Hmm. it's just it's one of like it's probably i think he was actually influenced by all the early 80s post-punk bands like john you know john taylor and then everyone else kind of going Hmm. and so and i think because bono like you know lost the lyrics to the record so it was very searching and it's still he doesn't have all the answers he's trying to find all the answers and so i think on later u2 records he was basically saying I know everything, follow me. And so I think <laughs> October was almost a little bit humble, I guess I would say. Um, but yeah. No, I like that a lot. I like the idea of preferring Bono when he is less sure of himself. That that makes a whole lot of sense to me. Okay, so what about Pop? You know, Pop from 97, you know, their last record of the 90s, you know, it's it's sort of seen now, I think, is is pretty chaotic. Not quite a failure, but, you know, not... Octung Baby, you know, not a top five record. So what is it about pop for you? I have always said, and so I, of course, I own this record in 1997. The cassette lived in my car for months on end. Okay. The cassette. And I still have it. It's probably worth like, you know, the the cassette, you know, resurgence. But I have always said that the songs on this record are really good. The lyrics are really 
cutting. The lyrics mm-hmm. are really moving. You know, Bono was actually kind of revisiting themes he was he had talked about early in his career, you know, talking about his mom, talking about mm-hmm. kind of death and mortality. And yeah. I feel like had they framed these songs in different production and different instrumentation, I feel like people would like this record a lot more. Um, I happen to like synthesizers, so I totally <laughs> dig this record. Sure. And I get why people don't, but I do think that if it was reframed in a different way, people wouldn't think it was just so ridiculous. Was it framed that way on purpose, you think? Was this U2 like using irony to disguise like the excessive sincerity of it? It's it's a good question. Um, you know, I think that they uh, the, the record maybe I, I just I can't get past like the discotheque uh, like <laughs> video where they're like no, dressed up basically like neither the village people and they're like dancing yeah. like it's 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 hilarious like it's really funny they were obviously trying to kind of you know take the piss out of pop music and fame and excess and kind of flipping the script a little bit and like if you know the band I think they're funny I do think that YouTube okay. is funny they don't get credit for it but. I, if, if you you have to really be paying attention. If you're just a casual U2 fan and you see what they're doing, you're like, what is going on? Like, you don't have that context. So right. there's a lot of layers you need to know about to understand where, where they were coming from on pop. Okay, because I was going to ask you just point blank if they're funny and funny on purpose. And so the discotheque video, I think, is is a central point here. Like, yeah. is that video 100% intentionally funny? Is it 80% intentionally and an additional 20% that's like they're not aware of? Like, what what's the calculus there in terms of the self-awareness? I, you know, I think it's probably, I would say like 75, 25 and okay. on some level they knew what they were doing, but then there was that other element. It was very, it was unintentionally hilarious. <laughs> and I feel like in general that that's kind of a YouTube theme that you look at some of the stuff, what they talk about or what Bono says, and he's just, you know, and you're like, and he's being very serious and some of it's like, that's really hilarious. And you don't realize that's funny. And when he right. is trying to be funny sometimes, you know, yeah, he keeps going a little bit and it's. Yeah. He, he hits sometimes and he hits not. So their batting average in terms of being successful too, eh, you know, 50-50. 50-50. Batting 500 is excellent in most exactly. contexts. Yeah. Uh, thinking, we're just jumping around, but that's fine. Thinking about one specifically, like it's sort of the most Joshua Tree-like song on Octoon Baby. It's a power ballad. There's not a lot of noise or dance music. It's not experimental the way that a lot of the rest of the album is. Like, are you two just best at their simplest? What I like about that song, what I think you two is best, is that when they're being genuine and they're being sincere and they're not trying too hard because you're right. This song is very simple. They're not overthinking it. It's very, you know, it's, it's really beautiful. They're kind of, you know, built around that lovely chord progression edge had, and they're not overthinking it. They're not over laboring it. They're not overproducing it. They're just kind of letting the song kind of have atmosphere and letting you kind of fill in the blanks. Kind of like we were talking about earlier, they weren't like telling you what to think or telling you this Mm -hmm. is the way they were kind of leaving it a little bit more open to interpretation. I think the lore of like the play by play of how this record was made, like the arduousness of making this record, like one's the moment where they get out of their own way. Sorry, I didn't do that on purpose, but like, yeah, (laughs) that's they, they, they're sort of arguing about which direction to go in, but like one is the song that arrives kind of fully formed and like they, it sort of shows them, not tells them like you're saying. Absolutely. And, you know, it is very true that, you know, you two trip themselves up more often than not. And so many 
you know, throughout their career <laughs> and that when they were just kind of going for it and, you know, trusting themselves. I mean, I think that's the other thing is that they know right. how to write songs. They know what yeah. they do best. And they were really letting themselves actually do that and not worrying about artifice or worrying about weird mm-hmm. costumes or, <laughs> you know, lemons on stage. They were just kind of letting the music breathe. Yeah. When did you first see them live? I saw them actually in 2001 on the Elevation okay, Tour Elevation. Okay. with PJ Harvey opening, and I skipped yes. the last few days of college to go to that show. Good choice. That year. Excellent choice. I was at that tour as well, but I was covering it, and I had to take pictures, and I had to stay oh. in the green room before PJ Harvey. Like we we were sequestered, and then my camera didn't work. Like Bono was like this oh. close to me, and I was pointing my camera at him, like at his crotch, and and like the the camera it was a camera didn't take any pictures. It was a terrible moment for me, honestly. But I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah, I took my dad, and we had a we had a really good time, <laughs> oh, and he really lovely. enjoyed himself. Yeah. So was your dad into the '90s? You too? You know, I, it's I'm always curious about people who came to them from the Joshua Tree or earlier if they were sort of turned off, you know, and had to be brought back by all that you can't leave behind in elevation. Like, where was your dad on the '90s? You know, I'd have to ask him, but I, I have a feeling because I, I think I actually got I bought him the the record, you know, basically after Pop. So I yeah. think that it was a little bit like that's the kind of the style he wants, and mm-hmm. so I think you know I don't. Yeah, I'm sure he was fine with me playing the stuff around the house. I don't remember any strong memories of him being like, this pop is great. Let's play this again. You know, right, I think right. he was more, you know, straightforward, anthemic, you know, you mm-hmm. two making a statement type thing. So, yeah, I think, you know, he liked them enough and he liked seeing them live, but I don't think he was really yeah. seeking out the 90s U2. Right. I You've written really lovely and very passionate defenses of both Zuropa and Pop. Like, where are the, where do these albums sit in the canon for you now? You said, like, Pop is one of your favorites. Like, do these, are these records super underrated? Do they need to be defended? Or do you think that, like, they're properly understood more or less now in the grand total sweep of you 2 So I think fans have really, just from, like, just talking to people online, there are a lot more Pop and Zuropa fans out there now than okay. I think I realize. I think more that people are hmm. coming around. I think the members of U2 are not convinced that those <laughs> records are worth saving. And that is frustrates right. me to no end. <laughs> Let's put How it that you- way. How do you, where are you getting that? Is that what they're saying or what they're not saying? Or like they're not reissuing them with the same fervor as, you know, Octung Baby, of course. What, where, how are you getting that? A little bit of everything. You know, the reissues are not necessarily coming lavish ones when they just did all of the re-recordings, like that whole era, like Pop, I think, got one song. And, you know, Zeropa right, maybe got right. a couple. And there just wasn't, there wasn't any interest in going back and revisiting and, you know, buffing it up. And, you know, like I said earlier, making it a little bit, um, reframing it in a different way and seeing what the songs sound like. It's just, it's yeah. almost like sort of their little neglected, like, area they want to forget. And I think that's really sad, actually, because I think that people, you know, people aren't embarrassed by that as much as they maybe think they are. And, you know, right. maybe they're embarrassed by it, but I think fans would actually welcome them, you know, kind of acknowledging. Because, I mean, like, I mean, how many bands put out, like, you know, Bad Religion, I think they had their prog record. I think mm-hmm. they're okay with it now. <laughs> you know, Al Jorgensen's talking about ministries with sympathy again, you know. Right, People right, are right. warming to the, you know, these quote-unquote embarrassing records of their catalog. So, you know, I think you two and they're big enough now. It's not going to hurt them, I think, to right. talk about it. 
But I agree with you on it being a little sad. Like the old Bono quote, like we're reapplying for the job of the biggest band in the world. Like what he said around uh, around all that you can't leave behind. Like sort of putting down everything that had come between Octung and now. You know, sort of setting aside that era. Like, do you think you t- so you two really underrate themselves in this era now? And it's th- the band that needs to come around. The fans have come around. The band needs to come around now to like the the worth of this stuff. I would completely agree with that. And, you know, because yeah. it's not like you two were, you know, small in the 90s with pop. They were playing stadiums around the world. Right, they were playing right. to significant amounts of people. They were still a big band. They were just sort of a different band and different sounding band when they were really big. And, yeah. you know, maybe they were just uncomfortable by that or they realized, okay, it's the 2000s now. New metal is huge. Pop music is huge. Like, how are we going to survive <laughs> and evolve again? So right. I'm thinking it was probably more in that, but... But yeah, it is it is a little bit dismissive of their own work, you know, and yeah. it is kind of a bummer. I wanted to ask you about two songs very specifically. The first is Numb from Zoo Ropa, which I think for <laughs> yes. a lot of people is the exact moment when like they got super weird. Like, did Numb connect with you immediately or do you appreciate it more in retrospect? Oh, I loved it immediately. Like that, I was totally, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I heard it on the radio, but like mm-hmm. the video I thought was hilarious. The video is great. I just yeah. watched that and the video is genuinely yes. really good. And see, I think that also speaks to U2's sense of humor when you look at it. Right. So, you know, they have Edge. It's basically them all living out their fantasies of like hurting the guitar player on, you know, on <laughs> the film. F- the feet. Yeah, yeah it's, it's exactly. really, really effective. Yeah, it's like hazing. But no, I love that. I remember watching that all the time. And just, you know, mm-hmm. I think my friends and I were just like totally into it. So I, I was all in on Weird U2 pretty much right away. Right. And that is probably their single funniest moment, as I think of it now, the numb video. The argument that they're humorless or they don't understand how they're funny. Like, I think the numb video is is the evidence in favor of them. I uh, would the too. Second, yeah. Uh, the second question is Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me actually the best U2 song ever? That's now a that big I think about question. It. That is a yeah. great song. I, you know, and <laughs> it it's, really it's, is. It's almost forgotten because it was on a soundtrack and it was mm-hmm. sort of in between. It has one of their best videos. The animated right. video is totally the bat, great. The Batman uh, playing the, in yep. the orchestra. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I think it is one of their best songs. And because, you know, Bono yeah. sounds great on that song, you know, for starters. Right. It's kind of like a mix between, you know, Octune Baby and then everything they were doing after that and also their rock mm-hmm. edge. And right. it's just, it's kind of, it's dramatic and cinematic. Like it's, yeah. it is, it is exceedingly underrated, I think, but I love it. I, it is one of their, I think probably top 10 songs. It's, it's aged their, better too. It's aged. Excellent. It's a glam yeah. rock classic. I exactly. Think. Yeah. Uh, Annie, why don't you two have a blockbuster original Christmas <laughs> song? Like they have Christmas baby, please come yeah. home. Like that's a great cover, but like a full U2 Christmas album would sell like 20 million. My mom would buy 20 million copies of that record. Like what's what's the deal here? It's it's a big question. Um, you know, I think I, I think because I think that they've almost it's, writing a good original Christmas song is actually very mm. difficult. Of you know, course. as you kind of look throughout history, what has become standards? You know, Mariah Carey, Kelly Clarkson, maybe Taylor Swift. So in the modern era, it's very hard to kind of top what happened decades before. Right. You know, so I think this goes back to you two being, you know, afraid of putting out stuff now. That's mm. not perfect. That's not, doesn't sound like them. I'm not right. sure if they know exactly how to approach a Christmas 
Christmas song because it's yeah. a specific topic too. Like it's like you mm-hmm. have an assignment right about Christmas and, you know, Bono, I don't know if he can like focus on that. And plus they have the Catholicism <laughs> yeah. thing. So they yeah. also, it's like, do they do secular Christmas? Do they do religious Christmas? Mm. I would think it might, it's almost like indecision. And, but yeah. I, I mean, I love the stuff that they have done, but I think that original Christmas music, and I think that they're just, you know, they're they're so interested in kind of like archiving and excavating their own history. When you kind of, right. you know, between Bono writing his book and looking back mm-hmm. and now the Octung Baby at the Sphere, they're really interested in kind of reframing some elements of their past and doing something like Christmas, you know, is something that I don't think they've like pondered to stop doing because they've been looking at their own history. Because then you'd basically be looking at, you know, that's a totally different mindset, I think, to get in. But it's an interesting question. I think, you know, I don't know, but they should. They should at least do an original Christmas song. They could do yeah. one. I think they could do a great double-sided 45 and it would be awesome. There we go. Record store day. Well, maybe exactly. I mean, people don't like record store day. Never mind. But I think I agree with what you're saying that like I think you two are perfectly balanced between like a secular band and a spiritual band. Yeah. They all they obviously have this very complex and deep and intimate sort of relationship, you know, with religion, but they're not explicitly religious most of the right. time, but they are very spiritual. I know my mom's a huge U2 fan and she's really drawn to that element of them, yeah. you know, the spiritual side, the Christian side, you know, and that's what, that's what always I thought made them sort of the perfect way to like strike that balance between a Christmas song for everybody, but a Christmas song very specifically, you know, for Christians. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and looking at that, it is weird that they never did one, you know, and maybe they tried yeah. at some point and just didn't work because they do do spiritual very well. And they have, you know, mm-hmm. talking about faith in a way that's not alienating to people. You know, they're right, really right. about questioning things and trying to bring people in and, you know, the, the Catholic way and you know, the almost yeah. the anti-Catholic way, I think. But um, yeah, it's weird. It's because they would be they on paper, they seem like the perfect candidate and right. they just have sort of you know, never done it. Maybe they should. Maybe we should put that out in the world that they should try. That's try. what we're doing right now. That is their entire purpose here. Are you going to this fair? Are you going to Vegas? Do you have any interest in this? You know, I I love, as much as I love Octoon Baby, I don't know if I can see them without Larry Mullen Jr., who's not drumming nah, for it's them. It's really weird. It's so I, weird. Yeah. I, I just, I just, I, I can't pull the trigger for how much money it is for what that right. is because Larry, Larry is, you know, what I love always about you too is that it's the four of them. You know, it's mm-hmm. not just, you know, Bono and a bunch of people. It's right. everyone has their skills. And Larry is, I mean, Larry's like the funny, low key, he's the drummer, you know, he's the he's funny, the low key one. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, I'm, I can't do it. If he comes back, I would like to do that, but probably not until he comes back. No, I agree with you completely. Uh, Annie, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thanks very much to our guest this week, Annie Zaleski. Thanks to our producers, Jonathan Kerma and Justin Sales. Thanks to Chloe Clark for additional production help. And thanks very much to you for listening. And now, without further ado, I need you to go listen to one by you two. We'll see you in a little bit. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh, my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. 
Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the golden collection at UGG.com. 